John 3. I'll go ahead and read verses 11 through 18, then I'll share with you the outline for this morning so that you can follow along with where we're going. Here's verse 11 of 1 John 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Would you pray with me? Lord, there are times that your word seems perhaps mysterious to us, cryptic. There are other times, I pray like this morning, where as we look at your word, we see very clearly what we ought to do. We see very clearly why we ought to do it. We see very clearly what love is in your eyes, according to who you are, according to what Christ has done and what you call us to do as well. Lord, what a wonderful, wonderful thing to talk about this morning your great love, and our opportunity to extend that love to others. Would you help us now? Grant your spirit, open our eyes to receive your word. Let it sink deep into our hearts so that we might be changed by it, so that we might be compelled to live according to what you have written to us for today, for your glory and our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, title this morning, Sacrificial Love in a World of Hate. Kind of a hard thing to put the H word in the sermon title. I spent a lot of time contemplating what should go there in its place, but really the truth is, is that when we look at this character, Cain, there's no better word to describe what filled his heart. So you see your outline here for verses 11 through 15. We're going to consider that love is opposed by the world. Verse 16, we'll see that love is most clear in Christ. And then verses 17 through 18, love is the deed of Christ's people. Probably should say deeds of Christ's people as well. Um, But moving in that direction to say that love is meant to be an action. That's something we hear a lot, right? We hear that even from the world. The world understands that love is best seen not in a greeting card, but in the helping hand of a friend, in the care and nurturing for a loved one who's in need. But let me bring you back to the 60s for a second. Listen to this poem by a certain group from that era. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Well, hopefully that's familiar enough to you. I think that this song, as great as it is, and we we all should agree we all have to be Beatles fans, right? 
for all the wonderful work that they've done. As great as that song may be, I think that the simplicity of what they portray as love is a little bit misleading. And I think that it kind of sums up what our culture believes about love, that it is simply the thing that we need, and that if we have that, we have need for nothing else. And as simple as the need is, the solution is apparently just as simple. All you need is love. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung, nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Okay, come on. Love is not easy, is it? Maybe towards the beginning, but it doesn't take long to realize that enduring in love is very, very challenging. Today we're looking at a command, a message that we've heard from the beginning that we ought to love one another. And John is not one who would subscribe to the Beatles' idea of love and that it is simple, it is easy, it is something that we can very easily access. But rather, it is something that we need to practice over and over and over again. In fact, if you look back at verse 10 of the same chapter that we looked at last week, this passage, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If John thought that love was easy, that love was simple, I don't think he would have written about it so much. This is the second time, if you're counting, this is the second time that we've seen the idea of love in this, his first letter, and it's not going to be the last time. And in fact, a lot of what we've already seen or a lot of what we see this morning is stuff that we've already seen that we're going to see more of in chapter 4. But in the context of what John is building towards, he's talking to us about waiting for Christ's return at the beginning of chapter 3, remembering his work of salvation that we saw in the middle last week, and knowing that that is what empowers us to right living, and that along with that right living, there must be an attitude and a lifestyle of love. We're meant to share God's kind of love, even as it is opposed by the world and our own failure to love. You see, the truth is, is that in this passage, we're going to see we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us. So we can see that God's kind of love is rejected in this world. But the truth is, is that in our hearts, in our old sinful nature that we're still dragging around from before we first knew Christ, we also oppose the love of God. We also reject it at times. Our problem is that just as John warns us, we are in fact more like Cain than we would like to admit. We're going to see that Cain's problem began with rebellion in his heart that choked up his ability to love and left room for hatred only. But then we'll also see that the solution is to receive the sacrificial love of Christ daily, over and over again, to preach the gospel to ourselves as we abide in Christ and be empowered and then determined to imitate that love, both to the church and to the world in our everyday life. So, love is opposed by the world. Following the story in Genesis 4, if you remember, Cain rebelled against God's standard for sacrifice. Abel, his brother, brought a lamb, offered it as a sacrifice, and it was acceptable. Cain brought the fruit of the ground, some vegetation that was not acceptable to God. He was angry when his way didn't work out. He became jealous of his brother, 
and he murdered him. You might start to think, John, this is a little bit extreme. We don't see a lot of murder going on on Sunday mornings in the church. It's not something we kind of plan for, although Tim did bring bear spray today. So I don't know, if your heart is full of hatred, watch out. Cain's hatred for his brother actually began with God. And rather than submitting to God's way, he goes even further in his own way and in hatred finds its fullest expression of that hatred in the murder of his brother. You can see um, further down in this passage, John says, everyone who hates his brother, verse 15, is a murderer. This is something we need to deal with. There's a reason that John says we should not be like Cain. If he didn't think that was a problem for the church, he wouldn't have presented it as a warning, right? So we need to recognize this very thing because even if we haven't gone and done this terrible deed like Cain has, if we harbor hatred in our hearts, we're not far from his character, far from the family that he is a part of that you see in verse 12. Again, the connection from last week's passage is very clear. Verse 10 says at the end, we kind of left off last week, didn't address this, but the one who does not love his brother is not of God. If we struggle with love, it's something we need to deal with, not something that we just need to say, love is not my spiritual gift. And yet, what better example of someone who didn't love his brother is there besides Cain? He hated his brother. He let that hatred play out all the way to murder. And what's amazing is how gracious God was to this murderer. So look at Genesis 4, verses 6 through 7. should be the next slide. Thank you. A couple slides over, actually. Okay, Genesis 4, 6 through 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? Let's just pause there for a second and recognize God is interrogating Cain in this moment to try to get him to reveal to himself. Does God really not know? Does God, is God like, whoa, Cain's angry. I didn't see that coming. No, of course he knows why Cain is angry. He's getting Cain to say it for himself. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Clearly, God wanted to give grace to Cain. Remember, he says this after the sacrifice. He doesn't say, oh, your sacrifice was lame, not accepting it, see you later. I'm just going with your brother. No, he actually speaks to Cain in this terrible moment of his hatred and growing jealousy for his brother. He let that grow to the fullest extent. He opposed the love of God. Why? John tells us, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So why does John warn us not to be like Cain? Does he worry that Christians are likely to act out their hatred in the same way? Probably not. What he does make clear, though, is that though we may not become so aggressive that we actually take another person's life, in our hearts we have to face the fact that that hateful, that hateful deeds begin with hateful feelings. And hateful feelings begin with hateful thoughts. This person's done something to me. I don't like it. They ought to be punished. I would like for them to be punished. I would like to do it myself. You see how it escalates so quickly and probably familiar to you, I hope, so I'm not the only one who struggles with this from time to time. We may not wish someone dead. 
We could probably look back on a time when we wanted to see someone get what they deserve according to our own standard. This could be due to hurt that someone caused us, to disagreements or arguments over things like politics or theology or whatever we feel strongly about. When we convince ourselves we are in the right and someone else is in the wrong, whatever that context is, God actually calls his children to love. It's not easy, Beatles. Most of us would probably say we aren't actively seeking the harm of another person. But is it possible that in our hearts, we're just waiting to find out that they failed at something so we can feel good about ourselves? You know, social media is terrible for this. It's made it so easy to say, yeah, I remember that guy from high school. I sure hope his life is really terrible. Let me look him up on Facebook and see how bad off he is. Again, thank you for the amen, whoever said that or something. Did somebody say something? It doesn't happen very often in here. Again, I, I know I'm putting myself forth here as, as, you know, like this is stuff that I, I'm not making this up, okay? <laughs> you got to tell me you're with me on this at times. Thank you. We want to see other people fail because in our hearts, there is hatred because we want to see things made right. That's what Cain wanted to do. He didn't have the tools to make things right, even though God told him so clearly, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? The answer is yes. God gave him another chance. He would have, he's basically saying, go grab a lamb and do the thing that your brother did and you'll be accepted. Examples don't exist for us in the church for competition and for jealousy, but for us to follow, right? Cain should have recognized what Abel was doing and recognized that the more important thing is not how he felt about his brother, but in fact, how he felt about God. Because his feelings and his thoughts towards God drove him to be jealous of his brother. Because his brother had something that he did not have. And that clearly he couldn't even get for himself another lamb. He couldn't even humble himself, even the slightest, to say, Oh, I messed up. Let me give that another try. But instead he acted out in hatred and took his brother's life. So, there's Cain. Not a great guy. He wasn't just looking for justice when he killed Abel. He was only acting according to his nature. He could not, according to his nature, according to the family that he belonged to. Again, look at verse 12. Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother, who was of the evil one. He was only acting according to his family. He was incapable of loving according to God's standard because he was not a child of God. Cain couldn't master sin because he was of the evil one. We ourselves have proven over and over, even if only privately, that dealing with sin in our own way only leads to more sin. And as James puts it in James 1.15, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the track of Cain's life. He desired to be acceptable before God. His desire was not satisfied, but the desire remained. And he responded to it with hatred according to the family he belonged to. And it conceived and it gave birth to sin. And he became jealous of his brother. And the sin happened before he murdered his brother. He already had a sin problem before he picked up the rock and took him out. Because it was when sin was fully grown that death was brought forth. 
Probably most of us have not picked up the rock yet, but in our hearts, we may find, even in the past, prayerfully not today, but maybe in the past, maybe something in the future that we need to be prepared for is to recognize that we should not be like Cain, as John says. When we don't set it in our minds that we're going to share the love of Christ with others, we leave ourselves open to sin. Crouching at the door is where sin is. Love is opposed by our old ways that we see in our lives all too often. And this is incredibly important, brothers and sisters, because the truth is is that we cannot live passively as Christians in regards to love. When we live passively and we just kind of say, I'm going to stroll through, I'm going to come to church on Sunday, might even be a part of a couple ministries, but I don't want to grow. I don't want to, I don't want to grow my relationship with Christ. I don't want to grow in ministry. I don't want to advance in my faith. If we want to stay stagnant, the only thing that's ahead of us is sin. Growth is necessary, as we've seen in the weeks prior. And without it, we will only be left where Cain was. So Cain, in one sense, brings a question to ourselves. Where is love being opposed in my own heart? But love is also opposed by the world. Cain, says John Stott, was the prototype of the world. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden would not only affect them, but their children also, and every single generation to this very day. So John says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. He doesn't say if the world hates you. The world does hate Christians, hates the people of God. That's not a very popular message today, but it's what John says right here. We can't just gloss over it. In one sense, it's less about individuals in the world and more about the larger movement of the world system, as John laid out back in 2.16, if you want to look back at that later. The truth is is that this world is not our home. And as we consider abiding in Christ through this book, we can realize the great differences between Christ, our true home, and the world where we are only aliens, as Peter says, only sojourners, temporary residents. We do not have full citizenship here, but full citizenship in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is advancing. The kingdom does not just stay put. That's why Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. Right now, it's not about a physical location. It's about a physical and spiritually renewed people who are going out into the world and bringing that kingdom with them and changing the way they think about others and and embracing the love of God, not only for themselves, but for those around them as well. We can see why this might sound surprising because John is not, you know, he's not saying don't be surprised just for his own health. He's saying it because sometimes we are surprised, especially when we're being really good, right? When we feel like we are a really good neighbor, we're a really good customer, we're a really good friend, we're a really good worker. And when those who do not know Christ uh, reveal that and, and bring opposition to the work that we're doing, we might say, hold on a second. Don't you know I'm just here to love you? It can be surprising. Maybe you've sensed that surprise before. Why is it that when Christ's kingdom advances in love through his church, that the response of the world is hatred? Because as with Cain's deeds, the world's system is also of the evil one. Remember 1 John 3, 1. The world doesn't know God's children because the world doesn't know God. Additionally, in 2.17, John said that the whole world and the desires of the world are passing away as the one who is doing the will of God will abide forever. 
So if you are a believer, if you are in Christ today, you're walking around with an imperishable seed of God in your spirit that's growing up into eternal life, as we saw last week. And yet all around us, the world is decaying and dying. This world is temporary. And so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that the hatred of the world for God's people will increase as the world system is slowly decaying and dying. That the hatred and the evil and the wickedness of the world is only going to get worse as the end gets closer. We've been talking about the world system here and painting with broad strokes, sort of, but the fact is that there are people involved in this, right? People like you and me. People who, being a part of the world system and not in God's family, actually abide in death. Look back to uh, the word that we read here. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Who does, whoever does not love abides in death. We cannot look at this from a worldly perspective and say, Okay, but here's the thing. I know I have this person in my life. They, they're so loving. They're so kind. They're so good. They don't know Christ, but, but they definitely love. And so I don't think that they abide in death. This is a real issue that we have. I, I had a wonderful person in my life growing up who uh, was, was like another grandmother to me. She was just wonderful. But I know she didn't know Jesus. But she loved so much. She was so kind. And yet, as far as I could tell, unless something changed towards the end, she did not know Christ. And I, I bring that up because the fact is, is that we know those people, we all know those people even today, right? You have people in your life that you say, yeah, well, I know, I mean, but they're just so nice. They're so helpful. They're such a good person. Well, the Bible is pretty serious about when it comes down to life and death and love and hatred, that if we do not love with the love of Christ, we abide in death. And we have no hope at all. Those who abide in death will not only face physical death one day, but just as we are being called as God's children to make our home in Christ, their home is made permanently in death. For the children of God, John offers this test of love to us today. How do I know if I've passed from death into life? Love. Is my heart full of hatred? John says, as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, that if we hate our brother, being a fellow believer or just another neighbor, we have committed murder in our hearts. This is because of what we talked about before. We say things like, I wish they'd get what they deserve. Or I'd be better off knowing that they weren't even around anymore. Murder is just the flowering of the seed of hatred. It's not some greater sin that we could never imagine ourselves doing. I don't think Cain woke up that morning and said, I'm taking Abel out. It's a slow festering of hatred. And again, if we do not advance in this command to love, then we're leaving room open for sin. Again, I'm not thinking that, you know, in the next week or so, we might accidentally go off and kill somebody. The truth is, is that this is what happened to Cain. I mean, Cain, look again at Cain's life for just a second. His parents were Adam and Eve. Do you think that Adam and Eve left the garden and like forgot what happened there or something? Don't you think that they would have told Cain and Abel that things were perfect? We were happy. We had everything that we needed. And we messed up in one thing. And it all literally is gone now. And yet Cain still murders his brother. 
Sin is crouching at the door of our hearts, brothers and sisters, and we must overcome it. We can only overcome it through Christ. If I find any shred of hatred in my heart today, I need to repent. Just as John warns in chapter 3, verse 11, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. When we hear that message, we hear that command, we automatically need to be thinking, am I doing it? If not, then I must be on some degree here doing in line with Cain in some way. Does that make sense? Again, not to say I'm ready to pick up a stone and take out my brother, but there are two camps. John has made very clear. There's the children of the devil and the children of God. I need to repent if I find this attitude in my heart again. I lived a life already before of, of hatred and jealousy and comparing myself with other people. Christ has redeemed me from that. He's redeemed you from that. We don't need to walk in those old ways anymore. Knowing what Christ has saved us from is incredibly life-changing. But for still billions of other people who don't know him, are you not motivated to share that love with them? Secondly, love is most clear in Christ. Look at verse 16, the, the crux and the change of all of this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So just as Cain was a representative for hatred and death, Christ is the clear message of love and life. By this, we know love. That's a really cool statement when you think ahead, again, to 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, say it, God is love. Just seeing if anybody's awake still. I heard somebody say it. You guys know you're allowed to talk during these things sometimes, right? You're allowed to nod too. Smiling is good. Frowning is also helpful. Why did you say that? These things are good. Wave your arms around. Something. Don't let this turn back into me preaching to the camera. I don't want to do that anymore. And the dead stare is feeling very familiar to a month ago. If we love, it's because we know God. We not only know what love is, but we know the source of love. We not only know the source of love, but we know the person who cannot simply be described as the most loving, but love itself. To say that God is very loving is insufficient. John has to say, God is love. This is how we know that God is love, what God, God is love means. It doesn't mean that God ignores sin and evil and simply loves everyone because all you need is love and it's easy and all, you just need to feel it and embrace it and everything will be okay. God's love in this verse that we see in verse 16, by this we know love. His love is attached to an event of the worst judgment ever poured out on an individual particularly the one who deserved it the very least for all of time. By this we know love. Not that simply he, he gave us life, though he did give us life, and that is an act of love. Not simply that he gave you children or family or home or friends or, or other things, but this is how we know love in the clearest sense. He laid down his life for us. God does not ignore sin and evil. But in his love, he deals with sin and evil. 
Christ laid down his life for us because God's wrath against sin could not be satisfied in any other saving way. He laid down his life. He wasn't captured by temple soldiers. He wasn't forced onto a Roman cross. The Father did not coerce him into bearing all the wrath of God for the sins of his people. He laid down his life for us from the beginning to the end. Think all the way back to that night, that night just as communion was about to be instituted. And he looks over to Judas, and what does he say? He doesn't say, I think there's a lot of hatred in your heart. I'm wondering what's going to happen. Have you ever considered Cain? He doesn't have that conversation with him. He simply looks to him him, in some of the most chilling words in the Bible, go and do what you're about to do. That's terrifying. But he knew. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. And what did he do? He didn't say, Judas, think twice about what you're going to do here. No. He said, go, do it. The biggest bring it on statement ever. And Christ went boldly to that. Look at John 10, 17 through 18. This is Jesus' words talking about what he's about to do. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It was the plan. Christ actively chose to love us in this way that he laid down his life for us. And yes, I am intentionally saying that phrase over and over and over again because I do not want it to be old news for you this morning. He laid down his life for you. He didn't accidentally end up on the cross because he preached in a way that other people didn't like. He intended from the moment that he came to this earth to die on that cross for you, to lay down his life for you. And so, John says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Loving brothers and sisters in Christ is, as John said in verse 14, how we know we have passed from death into life. Our hearts, though, will oppose this love. We'll convince ourselves that it's inconvenient or it's not worth it or that person doesn't deserve it or do I really need to be that loving in order to be a Christian because I really just don't want to go to that bad place. I want to go to heaven and I want my life to be good. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be afraid anymore. We come up with all sorts of excuses not to act in love. That person that we're called to love doesn't deserve that love. But Christ didn't lay down his life for someone who really deserved it. None of us deserve the life of Christ. And that's what can make this charge for us to love each other so difficult for us. When we look at the cross and see love in its clearest display, we know that we abide in Christ if we love what he loves. And he loves his people. Lastly, love is the deed of Christ's people, which we've, of course, already moved into a little bit here. I want to give you a really funny illustration here during a very heavy topic here, hopefully to break up a little bit of this tension, hopefully not wrongfully, but the illustration should be helpful. It was helpful for me. There's a small town in Canada called Churchill, and there's under 1,000 residents there on the Hudson Bay in Manitoba. So from July to November, they see an unusual amount of polar bears, some that even come walking down the street, has apparently done a favor to them as far as tourism goes. But an interesting thing that I learned about this is that as they see all these, and it's not as though polar bears walking down the street and you could just wave to them, but frequent, more frequently than you would see in Lima, I'm sure, 
And an interesting thing that I learned was that the town has basically, all the residents have basically agreed that they're going to intentionally leave their homes and their cars unlocked all day and all night. And this isn't to welcome the bears for a drive or welcome them over for dinner or anything, but it's a generally agreed upon practice and ritual so that they can provide a hiding place for anyone who might be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're walking down the street and you wave to somebody and you look back and realize they were a polar bear. You need a place to get away quick. So people leave their doors, their houses open to their cars. I mean, that'd be a kind of funny thing to have happen, right? Somebody bursts into your door. Oh, was there a bear outside? Yeah, got it. They get it. That's just the understanding. And I heard this and I was just amazed because at first I'm thinking, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, yeah, it's only a thousand people. It's not a very big place. But to leave my doors unlocked all the time, doesn't that leave me vulnerable to other things? Not thinking that polar bears can open doors, but what about other people? I don't trust everyone. The call to love by laying down a life is a call to sacrificially give something up in everyday life. That's why John says here in verse 18, Sorry, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this is the kind of thing that we're called to love people with, the practical ways. The stuff of life is literally what the Greek says. Food, clothing, shelter, Wi-Fi, that kind of stuff. John says that if we don't love sacrificially, we are actually locking up our hearts to those in need. And how out of place would you be in a place like Churchill if you were the one who had your door locked while everyone else's doors were unlocked? Can you imagine the shock of the person seeing a polar bear for one thing and then realizing they needed a place to hide quickly, going over to your car door, it's locked. That's weird. I mean, we don't think it's weird here if you try to open up somebody else's car door and it's locked, it makes sense. But there... It would have been weird. It wouldn't have made sense. You would have been, who could be so heartless to leave their car doors locked all night? I'm about to get eaten by a polar bear, which doesn't happen so often because again, they leave their doors unlocked. It's a practical way. They have something to offer other people and in love, they do that. Church, let's not be outdone by the world in loving others. Let's be radically sacrificial in how we love I don't know if that means that you leave your car doors unlocked all night. You know, it's not just a blanket kind of statement, like just do what everybody else does, but examine your life. Where could you be sacrificial in your love? And I'll tell you this, Jesus said, you have the poor with you always. And that is literally those who are living in poverty. But I think it also extends to say that you will always have people around you who have needs, needs that you can meet. And so it's not a matter of just simply saying, all right, Lord, I heard the sermon. It's Monday morning. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to be ready to love somebody today. It's not just that simple. We need to not only be ready, but we need to be determined to love others in the days ahead of us. Sharing in practical needs in order to display the greater need of every heart in Christ. Polar bears are one thing, but abiding in death should be far more motivating for us. This town could get serious about it because they saw the polar bears. Friends, if you've been made new in Christ, then you can see the great need in a person's life because you had that same need and Christ has met it. It's a small consequence of the greater spiritual need at the heart of every individual. 
The world will hate this about the church as well. We carry a message of love and of truth. Apart from Christ's love, there is nothing left but death and destruction. There is no other option. So listen to this uh, quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, For us to hate those who are in error, or talk with them with contempt, or wish them ill, or do them wrong, is not according to the Spirit of Christ. You cannot cast out Satan by Satan, nor correct error by violence, nor overcome hate by hate. The conquering weapon of the Christian is love. And I picked that quote particularly for that last phrase. The conquering weapon of the Christian is love. That gave me goosebumps earlier this week. The conquering weapon. We are not going to be defeated as Christians in this world. We have a conquering weapon. And even if they take our lives, we will enter into glory and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We will not hear, oh boy, wish I could give you another try on that. You kind of got defeated there. No, we have a conquering weapon of love. And to really embrace this, we need to not only, again, be ready to love, but we need to plan on it. We need to determine in our hearts that we're going to act in a way that is sacrificially in line with the love of God. We need to not only take this weapon of love with us, but determine that we will use it. Take the sword out of the scabbard and be ready to fight in the spiritual sense. See, Cain wanted to pick up a sword and kill his brother, but Christ is calling us to pick up the sword of love and bring life. And only he can do that. He draws people to himself and he is working. God is not lazy about drawing people to Christ because it's very easy for us to look in and be like, you know, I don't know that anybody's even getting anywhere near close to Jesus. Here's the truth, brother and sister. We don't know where people are spiritually. You can ask them, but they can't even necessarily tell you. How could we decide that somebody is near and ready to hear the gospel or not ready to hear the gospel? Talk to them. Share it with them. Love them. Don't be like Cain, as John says. Be like Christ. He didn't simply wait for the opportunity to lay down his life. It was his main mission from the day he set foot on the planet. Don't let hatred knock on the door of your heart. Take out the sword of love and overcome that temptation. How do I know if I have the love of Christ? Do I love my brothers and my sisters in Christ? Don't lock up your heart to those in need. Love in deed and in truth, not just simply in words. Don't stand ready to obey. Take out the sword and start marching. Wield it liberally. Be ready and excited to love others in a way that God might use you to conquer fallen and lost hearts for his glory. The Savior who loved and laid down his life for his church is worthy of that from us today, brothers and sisters. He's worthy of it regardless of what's going on, regardless of what we're facing. And not only regardless as though we should put aside all of our trials and tribulations, but in the midst of them say, this is an opportunity for me to love others and show the world what Christ is all about. So today, I have reflection questions for you. We'll go through them quickly. And then we want to do communion. Here's four things that might hopefully be helpful for you in the week ahead. We need to give attention to our need for greater love as we abide in Christ. As we abide in Christ, let us not just say, I'm reading my Bible, I'm doing my prayer time, I'm going to the Bible study, I'm doing the thing, but rather, Lord, increase your love in my life. He's not going to say no to that. He's going to do it. Give attention to your need for that. Secondly, 
Repent of any hatred or apathy in your heart. And I, I didn't really bring too much uh, emphasis to this. But in verse 17, when he says, when we close up our hearts against him, how does God's love abide in him? There's not only that active hatred that wishes ill or even acts evilly towards a person, but there's also the hatred that, that uh, shows itself in apathy and indifference. In thinking, well, I haven't done anything to harm them, so why should I be to blame? Well, if we have the world's goods and we don't share them, how can we say that the love of Christ abides in us? Thirdly, I need to examine the way I respond to hatred from others. The world's going to hate us. Got to be ready for it. Got to not be like me, who over and over I find myself, you know, having people getting angry at me in the car. I don't know why. I'm an excellent driver. But there's other things and particularly, you know, trying to talk to people about Jesus and realizing I, they don't want to talk about Jesus at all. And I'm kind of like, wow, I'm offended by that. I'm surprised that the world hates me. Don't be like that. Don't be surprised. Be ready. Face it. Embrace Christ. Abide in him. Lastly, act on opportunities to love others. Don't simply be ready, but do it. Determine that you will do so. When Peter says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, he doesn't mean like study all your apologetics and then just sit and wait for somebody to ask you about your faith. You might have to actually talk to somebody. You might have to initiate conversation. And if Christ has done that for us, we can do that in the lives of other people. Let's pray and then we will go to the table of communion. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to love and to abide in that love. And we can only do so by your great grace by your great love that you've expressed to us. So Lord, I pray as we um, look to your word one last time here and uh, respond by taking communion together, that you would reveal to our hearts the things that we need to say, oh, there's that nasty hatred seed in there. I need to get rid of that. It's knocking on the door of my heart. I need to overcome it by the sword of love. Lord, give us great victory in our repentance. Uh, we need to consider where our hearts are right now before we come to the table because your word gives us a warning that we should not um, take of the body and blood of Christ in vain, but rather that we should be uh, ones who examine themselves and, and see whether there's something that we need to deal with in our hearts. And Lord, what a great truth that as we sit now and consider those things, you are ready and not only able to forgive, but you are willing to forgive. You want to forgive. You are not like us in those moments where we say, yeah, I'll share the gospel if somebody asks, but I'm not going to bring it up. Lord, you are not like that. We want to be more like you. We want to be ready to forgive as you're ready to forgive and, and willing and able and excited to forgive. Lord, reveal that sin to our hearts, whatever that might be. Help us to confess. Help us to repent. Let this time of communion be a celebration of the great love of Christ that he indeed laid down his life for us. He did it on purpose. He did not do it by accident. It didn't just happen to him. It was his plan all along. And we give you glory for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.